Oh, yeah, so it's John chapter 2, which you can find on page 1613 of the Church Bibles. We're starting at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Oh, thanks, Sarah. Um, there's a lot of moments in life where we're faced with options, big options, uh, and we don't know which direction we should take. Uh, some classic sort of moments when you, know, you finish high school, uh, when you're trying to work out who to pursue romantically, uh, what opportunities at work to say yes to, what to say no to. Uh, in each case, we know that whatever we choose, it will set us on a path uh, that will really change our lives and uh, it will set a direction for us. Uh, those moments are often stressful and for some can be very crippling. Um, how many of you in those moments have asked God for some kind of a sign, some kind of confirmation from Him that the decision you're about to make, uh, the decision you're thinking about is the right one? Wouldn't that be great? A sign from heaven. Uh, when I was a uni student, uh, with the whole of life open in front of us with many possibilities, I had quite a few conversations um, with, with Christian friends about this very thing. <clears throat> uh, it was amazing, actually, how often a very normal thing uh, would be considered a sign from God. Someone would say, well, I failed a subject. Uh, I guess that's a sign from God I should do a different degree. Uh, when you get to work, people say things like, well, that comp- company was offering more money. It must be a sign that that's the, that's the place for me. Classic one, well, she messaged me right back after I prayed about it. It's a sign. She's the one. Um, that kind of thing, I think, is, is a pretty regular part of uh, my conversation back there. But the one story that really sticks in mind was a guy who was wondering if he should ask a girl out... <clears throat> He was praying about it, and as he was praying about it, he saw a car go past with her initials on the number plate. Uh, it's clearly a sign from God, he thought, uh, and then remained single for quite a while after that. Uh, it was funny, actually, this morning, uh, just before the service started, my watch stopped, and I thought to myself, maybe that's a sign I can preach for however long I want to this morning. Just keep going, Cam. But then I realized my wife might interpret that sign slightly differently, being out in minis today. Uh, it, of course, it's good uh, to ask God for wisdom and to seek his guidance, but it is funny that we could base a major life decision on something our friends might call a coincidence. Uh, interpreting random things in our world as if they're God's secret message to us, it's probably not the best, uh, wisest way to approach life. But what if, uh, what if God wanted to capture the attention of the whole world and to give everyone a real sign, something clear, a sign to help each of us choose the right path, actually the only path that matters. Uh, it's the path not to hell, 
but the path to eternal life. Because they're the two op options that are open before everyone. So, what sign could God give? What could he give that shows us the right path to choose? Uh, in John's Gospel, which we've been looking at for a few weeks now, we, as we keep looking, we'll see Jesus gives a number of signs. Uh, it's the language John uses, they're miracles often, but they're signs that point us in the direction of eternal life. Did you notice uh, in the reading that Sarah uh, just read for us that this great story of Jesus turning water into wine, uh, this is the first sign Jesus did, the first. Uh, he went to do other things, in, in many ways more impressive things. He, he heals someone uh, who's been paralysed for decades, their joints uh, and their bones, there must have been atrophy uh, happening all over the place. He heals him. Jesus heals the blind. Uh, he raises someone from the dead publicly. And of course, it's Jesus himself who will defeat death in his own resurrection. It strikes us as odd, though, doesn't it, that this first sign it takes place in the middle of nowhere. Hardly anyone sees it or notices it. And yes, I mean, it spares someone some social embarrassment, but doesn't really change any lives, it would seem. Surely, it's not as simple as Jesus kind of warming up a bit, uh, loosening up his miracle-working muscles, just starting something small, water to wine, okay, I can do that, now I can move on to other things. Surely it's not that. In fact, there's often scepticism uh, you would have come across uh, about Jesus' miracles, uh, that his disciples later on went to, went to invent some stories to convince simple-minded people that Jesus was really divine and, look, he could do cool stuff. If that was the case, you wouldn't tell this story, would you? Like, how is this miracle pointing out anything? Uh, how is it impressing anyone uh, unfamiliar with Jesus? So the question today is, how is this miracle, turning water into wine, how is it a sign? What does it say? What does it point us to? Other than thinking, well, Jesus would be great at a party. What else do we get to learn today? Well, I hope this morning that we'll see that this sign isn't just an odd party trick. It actually tells us everything, everything we need to know about Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do, and what it means for our lives. Now, there are a few layers of meaning uh, sort of packed into, this, uh, into these 12 short verses. Um, and as, as is always the case, um, it's not my job to be super creative or uh, really smart and to interpret what's going on here by myself. Uh, we first need to allow other parts of the Bible to interpret this for us. Other parts of the Bible give us the layers of meaning to work out what's happening here. So the first thing we need to know to make sure we don't go off into weird and wonderful speculation uh, is what John the author tells us this is about. So uh, here in the story, have a look again at verse 11. Uh, it'd be great to keep your Bibles open uh, to this story. Uh, verse 11, after the miraculous water being turned to wine, uh, John tells us, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first, uh, first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This sign revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now whatever else uh, we think is going on with what this sign means, that's the result, that's the product so we're going to know, if we've worked out what this sign means, if that's where we land, if it shows us something about Jesus' glory and helps us, even after one sign, uh, helps us as his disciples to believe in him. Now, alongside that, John, our author, very helpfully tells us uh, why he wrote this whole book, how to interpret the whole book, actually. Uh, it's so great when an author does that for us, you don't have to guess. Um, so have a look here. I think I've got on the screen, hopefully. Uh, this is John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. This is the key verse uh, in John to, to lock away in your memory to help understand everything John writes and why. So this is John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these signs are written that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this first sign we have, it should help us believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that should help us believe in him too. Somehow, turning water into wine, this event will help us believe. Not that he's just a miracle worker, not that he's a great magician, but he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. So, uh, let's get to work, uh, trying to work out what this all means. And uh, I want to start today with the fact that this is at a wedding. He's not in the marketplace. Uh, He's not helping out the manager of Dan Murphy stock up a bit. Uh, Jesus is uh, at a wedding. And we can't miss uh, the significance in the Bible of weddings, because the Bible starts with a wedding, with Adam and Eve, and it ends with a wedding in Revelation. Uh, Marriage is one of the main images we have in the Bible uh, that is a sign or a symbol, actually, of God's love for His people. That's what marriage is. Throughout the Old Testament, God is pictured time and again as an adoring husband, and His people are His bride. John, uh, the same author we're reading, uh, he wrote Revelation. And the Bible finishes there with this great picture where Jesus, the bridegroom, uh, will be united with his bride, the church. It's a great picture. So in, in scriptures, marriage is such a loaded symbol that we can kind of grasp uh, in our human uh, experience. Because whether you're single or whether you're married, like, we can all understand that in a marriage, two people get to know each other, uh, to really know each other, uh, better than anyone else will know us. And still, even being deeply uh, known, still being committed to loving each other, uh, warts and all. That's the kind of love God has for His people. He sees us as we are, and yet He is committed to loving us. In fact, I think it seems to me that God instituted marriage between a man and a woman so that we would have something tangible, a sign in our world that points us time and again. Every time we see a married couple walk past, it's a sign. Uh, of God's love for us. That actually seems to be the highest purpose for marriage in our world. And so, for our married people here, again, an extra encouragement to put aside time uh, for the marriage enrichment course coming up. It's investing in the very thing that is a powerful symbol to the world around us of what God's love is like. So, Jesus performs this sign, this miracle at a wedding, and yes, he he spares the bridegroom, uh, the groom at this wedding, he, he spares him shame and embarrassment of throwing a party that runs out of wine, but as he's doing that, doing that, it seems that Jesus is revealing himself to be the real bridegroom, the one who doesn't stuff it up, the best bridegroom. Jesus actually gives himself that title in Matthew's Gospels, and we see it in Revelation time and again. Jesus identifies himself with the Old Testament uh, bridegroom, of identifying himself as God. Jesus is the one who selflessly pursues, encourages, protects, he cherishes, and he guards his bride. His church, us. Now, I don't know about you, I find that profoundly encouraging to know that Jesus loves His church. Uh, he looks at us, He knows our weaknesses and our failings, and yet He is committed to loving us. I hope that encourages us to keep loving our church uh, and to be thankful, so thankful to belong to Jesus. So, there's one layer of meaning that helps, uh, helps us understand this story. There's another uh, far more obvious layer of meaning, I think. Uh, It's very simple. Humans cannot turn water into wine. Uh, I mean, you can go home and try it if you want, fill up your bathtub, uh, see if you can change by your sheer effort without touching it, uh, turn it into something tasty. We know we can't do it. Uh, John started this whole book in chapter 1, verse 1, telling us that through the Word, through Jesus, all things were made. 
Uh, Jesus is giving us the evidence here that, yeah, He is actually the Creator. Jesus is the Son of God. He made galaxies. He made electrons. It's actually a piece of cake for Him to alter, I guess, molecules, maybe at the atomic level, I don't know, uh, turning water into something far more complex in its chemistry, into wine. Not just wine, it's wine that's obviously uh, perfectly suited to the human palate. It's the good stuff, like Penfold's Grange. It's extraordinary when you think about what's actually going on in those uh, water jars. The Creator at work. There's one more uh, layer of meaning I want to take us through, uh, just to help us see how this sign reveals who Jesus is. Now, the, the great anxiety of our world comes from being uncertain about the future. I take it that's a truism. Uh, we get anxious because we don't know the future. But God does. And while he doesn't tell us all the details, he does tell us the inevitable endpoint that history is moving towards. It's a wedding feast. Uh, it's the wedding of Christ and his church, what I've mentioned. So as we look, to, look forward to the return of Jesus, we're looking forward to him ushering in a feast, a banquet, a feast in the kingdom of God that we're all invited to. Uh, Jesus has many parables that land that point, that we're invited not just to the concept of heaven, a vague place that's kind of good when you get there. We're invited with pictures and imagery of being invited to a party, the best kind of party. Now, a key layer of meaning the Old Testament gives us here uh, comes from the many ways that God has painted that picture for us. Uh, Perhaps Isaiah 25 is my favourite. It's one of the clearest, I think. And again, this will be on the screen, I think, behind us. In Isaiah 25, which is written some 500 years before Jesus, before this wedding, uh, God, through the prophet Isaiah, uh, casts an unforgettable promise of what he will do. He says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Doesn't that sound great? Um, By the way, I should say, for those who don't like wine and uh, for the vegetarians here, I don't think the wine and the meat are compulsory. Uh, I think they're just really good things you can enjoy, is the idea. And you can. You can picture yourself, can't you? Enjoying that feast... Enjoying the best things with the biggest, most amazing crowd ever assembled. And most of all, gathered with God. What a great thing. For the introverts here, are concerned about spending eternity in one big party. Don't worry, the point is clearly, we will all love this. In fact, Isaiah goes on in verse 7, chapter 25. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, and in that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord we trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Wine here is is clearly a symbol of the end of days, where God is bringing this salvation. There's joy, there's celebration, feasting, no more death. It's swallowed up. There's no more tears, no more disgrace. What a brilliant promise we get in Isaiah. And what a statement Jesus is making in Cana. He's telling us He is here to bring that salvation, to usher in that feast at the end of days, that He is the one who will swallow up death and save us. At the wedding in Cana we read about, we hear about someone with a kind of a cool title, the master of the banquet, uh, do you notice that person sort of pops up in the story? 
Now, their job, as far as I understand it, their job is kind of to make sure the wedding goes smoothly, kind of like an MC and a wedding planner, event planner. I assume they're supposed to coordinate the catering, one of their key jobs, make sure people have wine. See, as much as the bride and groom would have been really embarrassed to have run out of wine, I think the person who looks worst in this story is the master of the banquet. He's got one job. Now, I know there are a lot of things that can go wrong at a wedding. Uh, At my own wedding, we had the photographer uh, injure themselves quite badly just before the ceremony. Um, They're fine now, it's all good. But um, they they were on some pretty serious painkillers throughout the day. Uh, And some of our photos do look a bit odd, actually, in in hindsight, knowing that. Uh, Plenty of things can go wrong at a wedding. Uh, But running out of alcohol is perhaps one of the most embarrassing things that could happen here in Australia for most people, uh, and especially uh, so in Cana. In fact, if Jesus is saving anyone in this story, it's the master of the banquet. Now, this guy's used to saving a few dollars by serving the decent wine first, waiting for people to get a bit drunk, and then switching it for the goon. Um, Jesus, though, casts himself in the role of the good master of the banquet, the lord of the feast. He's the one that can pull it off. What a party he can throw. Do you notice, you get a sense of this as you're going through and how much wine he actually made? There's some footnotes, I think, in your Bibles there that give you some idea. It's over the top. It's extraordinary. There's six big jars of about 100 litres each. So something like 600 litres of top-shelf wine. If you want to do the maths on that one, it's about 800 bottles of wine or 70 cases. It's a huge amount of wine. I guess the point is that with Jesus, we know the wine will never run out. That is, he's never going to stop giving good things to his people. He's the Lord of the feast. He's glorious and he's generous. And he sets the invitation before each one of us, come, come and join him. Come to this wedding banquet where there will be no more tears. So, Turning water into wine with that sort of Old Testament background of weddings and feasts in mind, I think it shows us who Jesus is. Uh, he is the one God has sent uh, to make these things happen. And this, this sign is actually, many people talk about it as if it's like an acted parable. Jesus teaches in parables. This is almost like he's enacting, he's acting out a parable, telling us who he is and also what he's come to do. Now, when you, when you first read this, it, I always find this confusing. Jesus' conversation with his mum It's really odd, isn't it? Uh, She says to him in verse 3, they have no more wine. Just a statement of fact. Verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Then in verse 5, almost ignoring what he's just said, she goes to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. It's all over the place, isn't it? Just trying to follow what's happening here. It sounds like he wasn't going to do anything, but then he does. On first glance, he sounds quite rude, doesn't he? Um... especially calling her woman. But again, your Bible has plenty of footnotes this week, it turns out. Uh, It mentions that it's actually not as rude as it sounds uh, to us in English, uh, the way he phrased that. It's not just disrespectful. But still, he's rebuking his own mother, isn't he? It's not a kind of, oh, yeah, thanks, Mum, for letting me know. Just leave it with me. What's he saying? Whatever he goes on to do here, he's saying it's not yet the time for his own wedding. I came across a pastor who kind of puts it in this sort of way. Uh, what, I, what often happens at weddings, for those who are um, invited, if you're married, it sparks those memories of the wonderful day of your own wedding. For those who are not married, it sparks a thought, well, what will my wedding be like? Will this be me, who it will be with? Jesus, as a single man, knows exactly what his day will be like, his great and glorious wedding. 
as the bridegroom of history who will be united with everyone who trusts in him, with, with his church, who he, who he loves. And so the pastor kind of puts this idea that as, as Jesus watches his couple getting married, surely his own wedding day, that day would be on his mind. But that's not the hour he's talking about. Because first, before that glorious day, is the cross. We'll see all throughout John's Gospel that Jesus speaks about this hour a number of times, and every time he's always speaking about the cross. His hour to swallow up death is still coming. It's not at this wedding, but this wedding, this sign, anticipates and points us to that hour. Do you notice in the passage uh, what those water jars were made for, what they were there for? In verse 6, we're told they were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Uh, so much of Jewish day-to-day life was a reminder of God's holiness and His perfection and our imperfection, our need for cleansing, our need for purity before we could be in a relationship with Him. But ceremonial washing, it doesn't really change anything. It's just a constant reminder, a symbol, because we can't actually wash away our sins with water. But it's a symbol that God gave to keep pointing us to His forgiveness through sacrifice. That God would make us pure and free of guilt and shame, not with the water, but through sacrifice. An animal would often be exchanged to pay the blood price uh, for our sin. These water jars standing there are a constant reminder, even at a celebration like a wedding, they're a constant reminder that we need to be pure, and we're not. And we need to be pure to enter that great banquet of eternity. And no matter how hard we try, we're not. And we'll need to wash ourselves over and over and over again. But Jesus blows that system away. He replaces it entirely, not with wine, of course, but with his blood. And in the kindness of God, we celebrated communion earlier today where wine stands in as that great symbol of his blood poured out for each of us to make us pure, to pay for and remove all our sins and our impurity for anyone uh, when we trust in him. Uh, When I said earlier that the image of Jesus as the bridegroom tells us so much about his commitment and his love for us, many of you will have picked up on a big issue here. Well, how? How can he love me? He sees my heart, he knows my thoughts, he's perfect in judgment, and he can see my hypocrisy. He still loves me? How? It's constantly hard to believe, and yet uh, we're constantly encouraged in Scripture Jesus, with his death on the cross, is the perfect sacrifice for all our sin. He washes us, he cleans us, he renews us. And when we, when we accept the forgiveness he offers, that's a, that's a forever thing. There's no more ceremonial washing. He cleans us. For those here who, who are trusting in Jesus, but uh, find a great struggle at the moment to, to have assurance of your salvation, uh, you feel the constant niggle of guilt... Hopefully you'll be encouraged by uh, the fact there's just so much wine here in this miracle. It seems to be the point that there's more than enough for anyone. I think that ought to encourage us of the value of Jesus' blood. In it, there is abundant forgiveness. There's more than enough to cover for all our sins. As you think about this scene, this wedding, it's not that hard to imagine Jesus sitting there, uh, sipping on his wine, thinking about his own wedding day, but also what must come first tasting the bitterness of death on the cross and him drinking to the bitter ends the cup of God's wrath for all our sin. So we return to where we started. 
how does this sign reveal His glory and help us believe in Him as the Messiah, as the Son of God? Well, hopefully we've heard something of the answer to that. Uh, that is, as the Lord of the feast, as the bridegroom of history, as the one to swallow up death, Jesus provides an abundance of wine to show us not just what's in store for His disciples, the, the great feast in the Kingdom of God, but that to get there, we must accept that His hour, His real glory is revealed on the cross, that we need to be washed clean by His blood. We must believe Him. We must ask for His forgiveness to enter that great feast. Uh, one of the really common objections that people seem to have about following Jesus uh, and putting their trust in Him is that they'd just rather have more fun. Uh, even for followers of Jesus, committed disciples, we can sometimes, I think, start thinking like that sometimes. Just kind of getting to, oh, it's hard being a Christian, it's, oh, it's tough being hard, you know, good and sensible all the time, hoping to just be boring as possible, maybe Jesus will save me. I hope you've seen here, this, this, Jesus blows that all out the water. This miracle affirms, I think, how good it is to be gathered by Jesus as his disciple. Don't get me wrong, there's hardship, there is suffering in the Christian life, we're not spared from that. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, do you see how this sign reveals that Jesus is not the killjoy at the party? He's the master, he's the Lord of the party, the Lord of joy, actually. And he offers that invitation to everyone, to you, to be the guest at the banquet into eternity. It's an invitation to be made clean, to have a fresh start and be forgiven, simply by asking for his forgiveness and trusting him to save you. That's actually something you can do today. Uh, you can turn away from the path you want and accept Jesus' invitation. Uh, you can pray to him anytime, asking for that help. And if you do that, please come and speak to me today. I'd love to know that and uh, work out how to help you take next steps. If you're just not sure, if you want to take some more time thinking through these things, please do sign up for life. It's coming up this Thursday night. It's a great way uh, to explore these things with great food and drink. I can't promise uh, Penfold's Grange, but it will be good. Now, for Christians, I think there are a couple of ways that this, really, uh, this passage really encourages us. Uh, firstly, I think, to keep our eyes fixed on the bridegroom and the banquet still to come. Uh, the first thing, I think, is to keep working at being really thankful for the good things we enjoy from God's hands now. Uh, that is, when we enjoy a great dinner with friends or uh, perhaps we're out for a walk and discover some breathtaking part of our world, uh, if we find a new wine we love, I think we ought to keep cultivating a heart that helps us to stop and enjoy these things to the full by being thankful to God for them, by consciously, deliberately, and prayerfully uh, turning to God and thanking Him for giving us something good. It's a, it's a moment of discipline, actually, at a party, uh, at a school graduation, whatever it is, uh, especially at a wedding reception. Taking that moment to look around, to enjoy the moment, to enjoy the good things God has given us, uh, giving us a small taste of the joy set before us. It's good to think to ourselves, wow, if this is good, how good will it be to feast in the kingdom of God? I think those moments of enjoying sort of full hearts of joy can really spur us on. Alongside that, um, I think inevitably, what we'll also we'll find in that sort of moment of joy uh, is a sober moment as well. Uh, perhaps a bit like Jesus himself at this wedding feast, amidst the celebrations and the joy, it will strike us rightly uh, with a bit of sadness that so many people have still yet to accept this invitation. So the first thing to do is to pray. To pray that God would do a great work uh, here in our city, in our country, in our world. Uh, we're a church that's committed about sharing this good news about Jesus and the banquets that will come with as many people as we can. 
keep being spurred on by how good it will be to have so many people we haven't met yet join us there. There will be people we won't get to meet in this life, but we can contribute to getting them there, actually. There will be people we'll meet at this kingdom who have heard the gospel because God's been answering our prayers for CMS, for people at the Purdy's in Chile. We'll meet people who have heard the gospel through the Bush Church Aid. Because we've been praying, we've been given uh, money to finance the work. Many will be invited through the kingdom. Many we won't meet now, but we'll meet at that banquet. It's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? To keep praying and to keep sharing the gospel. Inviting people to life coming up might be one way to do that. Uh, But for quite a few others here, a great response today is to keep trying to grow in how we share the good news of Jesus ourselves. Um, There aren't many here, I think, who would feel like they're really awesome at sharing the gospel. Some might feel uh, very equipped, very ready. Uh, That's great. Um, I don't usually feel that way, uh, but I do want to keep growing in that. I do want to keep getting better in the way that I can serve Jesus and share uh, about this invitation to the kingdom. I'm pretty lazy. I look for shortcuts. I look for other resources that other people have done. And we have a brilliant one, actually, a brilliant resource to let you know about. Uh, the Word one-to-one, there's a little booklet here. Um, it's very simply actually taking you through John's Gospel. Um, there's little, little booklets. You can have one. You can uh, invite your friend along to a cafe or wherever. I've been, I've been doing this uh, with someone for a while now. We just flick through a chapter or so. You probably can't read it there, but it shows you a bit of John. And then there's those notes, the layers of meaning that you might not be able to draw to mind uh, under pressure in a cafe. They walk you through the passage because uh, I think the best way to introduce someone to Jesus is to take them to the Bible. Uh, for instance, in uh, John chapter 2, uh, the notes in the Word 1 to 1, there's a great quote from Isaiah 25 I gave us. I have stole it from there. It's a fantastic resource. Uh, I really encourage you to uh, make the most of that. If you're keen to find out more how to use that, uh, another little plug for today is on Friday night this week, uh, the guy, one of the guys who put this together is in Adelaide. Uh, he's come, he's going to give some training, and I hope you encourage that. You probably can't see any of the text or details. It was all in our weekly email, so uh, go back and check that. Uh, you have all the details to get along this Friday night to hear more about how to use the word one-to-one to share Jesus with your friends, uh, your colleagues, and that sort of thing. Above all, though, today, I hope the encouragement for us all is to keep trusting that the Lord of the feast is the one who can purify us and that he's looking forward to the day where he welcomes us, his disciples, where he welcomes us to taste the finest of foods, the best of wines. And so with that in mind, would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, for revealing your glory, showing us who you really are at this wedding and Uh, even more so in the clearest way, showing us your glory and your love as you shed your blood for us on the cross. Please help each of us uh, trust you as the one who swallows up death. Help us to look to you as the one setting the table for us to enjoy the many blessings of eternal life with you. And so please spur us on in the day-to-day of our lives. Help us keep trusting uh, that the good things uh, you give us are from your hands. And we ask you that you do a great work gathering many more people in our world to be there on that day. Amen.